Let's turn to the passage that was read in your hearing, Second uh, Timothy chapter 4 and the fifth verse. I was hoping that within six months then I would uh, complete th- this, uh, this passage, this book, and uh, by the uh, end of next Sunday I hope that w- will have been achieved. So I want us to look at verse 5. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. I'm speaking to you about some of the marks of a spirit-filled life. Just a sample of... uh, A person who is filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm conscious that there could be someone here this morning who is burdened with guilt and feeling suicidal. And uh, that he might have sighed at the theme of this sermon. That the message seems to be offering no resolution to you. And you've concluded that you need to know of forgiveness and mercy and power and hope from God to live a new life. Can there be mercy for me? That's your, your biggest concern uh, this morning. You want grace, not the law, as it's outlined in our text. I'll speak to you. I will tell you where hope lies. I will tell you that it is in the one and only man in the world who fulfilled all these divine requirements of our text. That he kept his head in all situations. That he went through the most unspeakable hardships and endured them. That he was an evangelist. That he told people, come to me and I will give you rest. And he did. And he never forgot to do his duty. Our help is in Jesus Christ, uh, God's great definition of a man. The man who lived just like this verse describes, who died the death of the righteous in the place of sinners, who bore their condemnation in his own body on the cross. And God has brought you here, sinner, uh, this morning to hear this message. I am telling you uh, all of you who are here, of the possibility that you can have a great improvement, that you can have new life, that you can live as Paul requires Timothy and every Christian to live in our text. You needn't go on limping and staggering from one failure to the next, because whatever God commands us, he enables us by the Holy Spirit to do. So take courage. What's been wrong with you is far more profound than you have realized. It's not certain addictions and bad relationships that are what's wrong with you, but that you fail to keep your head in different situations, that you caved in and turned to drink in a time of hardship, that you know of no good news that you can tell or that you can believe for yourself and that you have failed in your duties as a son, as a father, as a husband, as a friend, as a neighbor. 
Little wonder you're depressed coming here this morning. I have good news for you if you will listen to what I will tell you about Jesus Christ. So, I am, let me by introduction tell you something about this phrase I have used about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me give you the big picture. That there are four areas of our lives which need to be dealt with if we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Four areas of our lives. Firstly, you are spirit-filled if you grasp the truth of the gospel. You must know who God is, that God created the world, that man fell into sin, that God then determined he would send his son, uh, the seed of the woman, who would come, would bruise the head of the serpent that attempted our first parents, and that he would live the righteous life we failed to live, not in the garden as the first Adam, but in the wilderness of a fallen world, as the last Adam, he came and he did that. And he paid the price of atonement to reconcile us to God. He did that. We are delivered from destruction by him and we receive the benefits of it by putting our trust in Jesus Christ, by entrusting ourselves, believing upon him and finding hope and comfort and forgiveness through him. You must know these Bible truths if you are to be filled with the Spirit. Ignorance of them means you are a stranger to being filled with God the Holy Spirit. Secondly, you are Spirit-filled when your emotional life, the life of your affections, is characterized by love and joy and peace and contentment and deliverance from worry and fear and trust Elijah was lying under a juniper tree. He was almost suicidal. And God came to him and didn't say, there, there. God said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? The psalmist challenged his own heart. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within you? Why this restlessness and unease, this whole mysterious area of our inward being, our feelings, our emotions, our affections, they too must come under the influence and power of the Holy Spirit if we are going to be spirit-filled. Thirdly, you are spirit-filled when your devotional life is characterized by praying and, and time set apart. When you come into the presence of Jesus Christ, there are lessons you learn in the presence of our Lord Jesus that you can't learn anywhere else. Jesus said he wanted us always to pray and not to faint. And that means, of course, not only individually and personally in our lives, but when, when the Lord's Day comes around, we're in our place, morning, evening. We're in the prayer meeting. We meet and we pray with the people of God, for the people of God, our devotional life. Jesus said, the world will know you are my disciples because of your love for one another. Well, you've got to know people before you can love them. You've got to meet with them. Don't neglect the meetings with other people, other Christians. And then you can love them. And then people will know, ah, that's a, a Christian there. 
So the third mark of a spirit-filled life is a, a, a devotional life. And then, uh, lastly, fourthly, uh, what's before us this morning. You are spirit-filled when you're li- living uh, a God-honoring, um, Christ-like, holy life, an obedient life. That's why after 11 chapters in the letter to the Romans, there's chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, which describe how we should live individually and in the church in our relationship with the world around us. In all those four areas then, there must be attainment and growth and maturity if you are to be spirit-filled. It's no use excelling in three but be ignorant of the truth when the Jehovah's Witness denies the, the deity that Jesus Christ is God how can he be filled with the Holy Spirit the Spirit honors Jesus Christ and glorifies Jesus Christ if you are good in three but you are prayerless then you are a proud man and no proud man can be a a spirit-filled man. And if you are joyless and melancholic and angry and bitter, then you are not filled with the Spirit because the Spirit drives out those uh, difficult and unchrist-like feelings from our lives. It requires maturity in every area of your life to be full of the Holy Spirit. And you know that there are various phrases and concepts in the Bible that describe uh, a spirit-filled life. Uh, For example, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's the spirit-filled life. Present your body a living sacrifice to God. That is a spirit-filled life. Clothe yourself in all the armor of God. That is another phrase that describes the Spirit-filled life. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It's just the same. Fearing God and keeping his commandments. If you undo uh, those phrases one by one and look at them, you come to the four definitions I have given to you of the spiritual life. To do with truth and uh, the affections and to do with... uh, Uh, holy living, they are there. What folly to imagine that if you have glossolalia, you are spirit-filled. What folly? If you speak in tongues, that, that you are told then, oh, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Would that it were so. It is not in ecstasy that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, but when we attend with spirit-strengthening determination to all these areas of our lives, it is then, it is only then, that that we, we experience the blessedness of being filled, every part of us, with the Holy Spirit. Now you will say, but you believe every Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. And I appreciate that in that uh, 
the Holy Spirit has access to every part of the Christian, doesn't he? He has uh, access to our minds and our thinking, to our hearts, our conscience, to our affections, to our bodies. They are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In that sense, every Christian is filled with the Holy Spirit. But there are degrees. There are what the Bible calls novices, new Christians, who are making the first fumbling steps and have the first naive understanding of what it is to be a Christian. And then there are men who are filled with the Holy Spirit and faith. When the early church came to set apart seven men to help them in the leadership, in their ministry of mercy to, to the church. They wanted mature men, didn't they? They didn't choose seven novices. They chose seven men that were full of faith and the Holy Spirit. There are degrees amongst us. And I'm saying some of you are beginning the Christian life. And some of you are going on in the Christian life. And some of you are mature in the Christian life. And you have leadership and office holding in the church and we thank God for you but all of us can grow more all of us can become more godlike in our lives so uh, Paul is telling Timothy in in this letter about all the four areas I've mentioned he touches on the one and then he goes to the other and he returns again and again to this theme but here in this passage he is dealing with this fourth area I mentioned of holy living of not perfect living, but elevated living, a noble living, and, and God-like living, God-glorifying living, the possibility that in this world there are people who are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And they are this because of the Holy Spirit within them and because they know the word of truth of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible has an enormous stress on this, doesn't it? You know that. Just think for a moment. Think of the Old Testament's insistence on this. Think, for example, of the book of Proverbs, 31 chapters. And how chapter after chapter is dealing with what Paul is saying in our texture. That we're not to be sluggards. That we're not to be fools. But that we are to be wise and holy and caring and loving. That we're not to be caught up by a gang. We're not to be tempted by uh, an adulterous woman. You know the great stresses. 31 chapters tell us this. The book of Ecclesiastes does the same. Often in the Psalms, the righteous are described for us. The preaching of the prophets is the same. Moses in the book of Deuteronomy expands what it means to be a, a righteous life. And then when you come to the New Testament, of course you find it in the New Testament. Matthew 5, 6, 7. Similar on the Mount. Romans uh, chapters 12 and following. Ephesians 5 and 6. Uh, Colossians uh, 3 and 4. The letter to James. It's insistent. If you say you're a Christian, well, it's got to show it. You can't just talk the talk. You've got to walk the walk. The Bible insists on that. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord. And it spells out what holiness is. It's not just a numinous feeling that you may have uh, if you hear a Gregorian chant or you enter a candle-lit 
cathedral. But it's when you address these areas of our lives and, and mortify your sin and encourage good living, holy living, loving God, loving your neighbor as you love yourself, the next great commandment. So let's look at them. Four things God wants you to know. Four things why God has brought you here this morning. And the first is the spirit-filled man keeps his head in all situations. You see that in our text? He keeps his head in all situations. Some of you know Rudyard Kipling's If. It was a a survey on the BBC last year. uh, What was the most popular poem in the English language? And it was Rudyard Kipling's If. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, you'll be a man, my son. All right, you know that, that, and so on. Uh, Fascinating poem. If Timothy can maintain and nurture these, these four qualities that Paul rattles out here in our text, then... Um, He'll show he's a man of God. Now, keeping your head is the NIV translation, but you know you've got other translations that you're more familiar with. The authorized version is uh, sober, and it's the common word in the New Testament. Uh, Twice Paul tells the Thessalonians, using this word, be sober. And three times in the letter, first letter of uh, Peter Uh, Peter says, be sober, be sober, be sober. He tells them it's encouraging the very opposite of being drunk and losing control. Be steady, he is saying. Be level-headed. Be well-balanced. Be self-controlled. Probably the the Christians in Ephesus where uh, Timothy was the pastor were getting giddy and emotional when they gathered together. The crowd dynamics were such that people were doing things when they were in a crowd that they would never do when they were by themselves. They, they, w- they would think too rationally and thoughtfully before they would commit themselves, but when a, a crowd swayed them, they did daft things. The churches in Asia Minor were being intoxicated by heretical notions. The resurrection is past, and so on. In all situations, keep your head. Timothy, he says. Uh, Kent Hughes, a notable uh, American preacher uh, in the college church in Wheaton for many years. He talks about a meeting he had with Alistair Begg. Remember Alistair Begg two years ago? He spoke at uh, the Aberystwyth Conference. We greatly profited from him. He's the best uh, radio broadcaster in, in America. What a fine preacher he is. And Kent Hughes says, I, one afternoon, Alistair Begg was meeting with a number of us, including myself, and he quoted this very verse to us all. But you keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And he said to them, I increasingly find that verse to be the anchor point For all my days, I wake up on a Monday and I say, well, what do I do now? And then I say, well, I think I'll keep my head, endure hardship, do the work of evangelist, 
and discharge all the duties of my ministry. And then when it comes to a little encouragement that sometimes we get, I say to myself, well then what shall I do? And the answer is, keep your head, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and discharge all the duties of your ministry. And then he said, and when the waves beat on me, and I feel just like running away to the hills somewhere, what should I do? Well, Alistair, just keep your head and do a hardship to the work of evangelist and discharge all the duties of your ministry. So then, that's a word in season. Alistair Begg said to them, and as I say to you, you take this word home. It's a very neglected word. Take it home. Write it on a a piece of paper. Stick it with a fridge magnet on your fridge. And do the next thing. And Kent Hughes adds, the years will fly by like fence posts on a farm road as you drive along. Years quickly become decades. And you and I will change in these years. But God's call to us will never change. Jesus, your judge, your saviour, your king, will always be present. And... uh, He will charge your call with divine voltage. And his charge will be, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all patience and teaching. As for you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. This is what our Saviour did. The Lord Jesus kept his head. Thousands and thousands flocked around him. He had to escape from them. 5,000, 8,000, 10,000 would would be there sitting quietly. And he could speak to them. He never got proud for a single moment. He never wrote a word about his experiences and his popularity. He kept his head when women ministered to him. And wept over him. And anointed his head with uh, anointing perfume and dried his feet with their hair. He never took advantage of them. Mohammed took a number of women and married them all. Some were very, very young women. Jesus didn't claim, well, the patriarchs, they had a number of wives and David had a number of wives and Solomon had a number of wives. Don't I have the right in my loneliness for a wife too? How can it be wrong when it seems so right? He never thought like that. Not short, uncertain life that would end on the cross. That, uh, that he should take a wife. He kept his head. God kept him. He kept his head for 30 years in a one donkey village on a thorn bush hill in Nazareth helping his father make window frames. And fence posts. And he didn't think for a moment. Did I come from heaven. To spend three decades of my life doing this. He never challenged. What was God's will for him. When they blindfolded him. And punched him. And spat at him. When they drove nails through his hands and his feet. He he didn't say. I'll get you. He kept his head. He prayed for them. He loved his torturing neighbors like his tortured self. He prayed that God would forgive them. He kept his head. And when we mess up, 
we keep our heads. When things go wrong and we fall, well, our own righteousness is deeply flawed. We never get to heaven on covered in our own righteousness. It's a cobweb. But we can stand boldly before Christ if we are in the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who kept his head when we have failed to do that. Keep your head. Secondly, the spirit-filled man endures hardship. Now, it's the fourth time in this uh, letter to uh, Timothy that he's spoken about enduring, enduring hardship. In fact, he speaks of it once in every chapter. Chapter 1, verse 8, endure suffering. Verse 3 in chapter 2, endure hardship. Verse 11 in chapter 3, uh, and again then it's the same, the things I endured. And uh, chapter 4 here in our text. You're going to suffer hardship. Timothy, do you know, do you know this call to be a pastor, preacher? in Ephesus. Do you know it's, a, it's a, an invitation to suffer? Those of you, I want you all to become Christians. I want you all to take up your cross and deny yourself and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. It's an invitation to hostility from an unbelieving world, an unbelieving family perhaps. No Christian promised Exemption. Promise ex- exemption from the groanings of this present world. Babies in the wombs of their mothers. They are sick. We are not promised as Christians deliverance from the common frailties and diseases of humanity. Be prepared for what lies before you. Endure it. You think of the Lord Jesus. He's the Son of God. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Look how he bled, how he thirsted, how he hungered, how Satan got him down and his friends didn't understand him and his family resisted him. He endured. He endured. You've got to keep going. You've got to endure it all. When he was hanging on the cross, not for a mini-second did he think, what am I doing here? What is God asking of me? If I'd known that it was going to cost this, I wouldn't have died for them. He didn't for a minute think like that. His whole life was one of enduring what God had decreed. From enemies and friends, he endured it. The Christian life is all about endurance. Think of Abraham. And enduring that his, his young nephew, Lot, he chooses the, the best land, the smoothest plains, the richest grass, the, the springs that never went dry. And he chose that. Abram endured it. Sarah endured her husband making the most awful decisions, like many Christian husbands make awful decisions and their wives have to suffer for us. She had to tell people she was his brother. And she was taken twice into harems. And only God preserved her. Joseph endured his brother selling him into slavery. And he didn't let a root of bitterness go into his heart. He was able to say to his brothers, you meant it for evil. 
God meant it for good and he could forgive them. Moses endured 40 years at the backside of the desert looking after his father-in-law's flocks of sheep. David endured Saul threatening him, throwing javelins at him, wanting to pin him to the wall and, and kill him. Daniel, under four kings in Babylon for 60 years, he endured the hostility and resentment and jealousy of Babylonian courtiers and nobles. They endured. The Christian is someone who endures the martyrs in Cardiff and Carmarthen and Oxford and Tyburn. They endured, burned alive for biblical truth. Wesley and Whitfield and Spurgeon endured. Keith Underhill endured 40 years in Kenya, in Kenya, bearing the cares of all the churches. You can endure because you are a man of like passion as they are. They are a man, men and women of like passions as you are. You can endure. You can go on. You can find strength from God. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Just bring your weakness to God and tell God you need His strength in order to get by. Thirdly, the spirit-filled man reaches out in evangelism to others. Um, we're all under the Great Commission, aren't we? Just like the Ten Commandments. We're under them. We're under a command that says, go into all the world and teach the gospel, everything that Jesus commanded us. No escape from it. No escape. God has made us evangelists. We have the sinner's gospel, and so we have to tell it to sinners. When they go to hell, they do it in the teeth of the mercy of God being offered to them. Timothy is being exhorted here to remember that, that great commission of his Savior. Do the work of evangelist. Let me tell you a story. Debbie R. Allen of Glasgow. She's now the wife of a minister. Wasn't raised in a church going home. But she met a boy who liked her. And he took her to church. It was a decade before she was converted. When she was 24. A few weeks before Christmas. She was in church in Alness. Right up in the north of Scotland there above Inverness. And she heard a minister, Bill Murdoch, say to the congregation what every gospel-believing minister says to his congregation at some time. He said, if you died today, where would you go? It's a great question. We're not annihilated when we die. We will live as long as God. Our bodies and our souls are separated the one from the other at death. Our bodies lie in the grave, but our souls go to God to receive a divine evaluation. Debbie said, dread and fear came over me because I knew that I'd go to hell. He was doing the work of an evangelist, her preacher. But her fears and her convictions didn't mean that she had been converted. 
A week later, New Year's Eve, it was the social in the church, and she was burdened by her sin, and she spoke to Bill's wife. And Bill said to her, would you like to talk to my husband? She said she would. So they went into the vestry together, and he said to her, do you want Jesus Christ to be your Savior and to repent of your sins? Yes, she said. Then he prayed with her, and she joined with him and said, Amen, at the end. And it was as if a great burden had been lifted from her shoulders. That's how it happened with her then. It doesn't happen with all of us like that. But all of us must see that we are great sinners and we need a great saviour. She went back to the gathering. She said to everyone, I've become a Christian. I've become a Christian. She wanted to tell them all. She wanted to go out into the streets and tell everyone. She knew God. She had become a Christian. And then she told her family and her mother was very resentful. Her mother said, your husband has forced you into it. It was not like that at all, she said. Nine years later, they passed through a great trial. Her, her sister, Catherine, was stabbed to death by her ex-husband. And three little nieces came to Alness to live with her mother and father. She kept believing through all of that. She didn't, she didn't say, why did God do this? She kept trusting. She kept believing. She held on to the promises. And today, she is... Uh, minister's wife in, in Glasgow. Are we doing the work of an evangelist? Um, there will be no growth here unless we're a hundred evangelists, not just one. Unless every one of us does the work of an evangelist. Now you know that uh, Rodri Brady will be starting here in uh, six, seven weeks' time. And he can't do the work of evangelist by himself. Uh, You've, you're thinking already of some people. You say, oh, we've got a new minister. There's a new voice now in Alfred Place. And uh, we, we love him to bits. Come along. Come, you'll enjoy him. You, he speaks very clearly. And uh, you, Come along with me on Sunday. You, you're thinking. But before that, you're praying for them. You're doing the work of evangelist. Lastly, the spirit-filled man discharges all the duties of his ministry. He discharges all the duties of his service. What's your ministry? What's your service now? Where do you serve God? Is it at school? In the home? In the kitchen? In your place of work? In the science lab? Do you work for a television company? For the police? Are you a member of parliament? Are you living in an old people's home? Do you drive a taxi? Is your work as a, a painter, a plumber, a musician? Well, there are people who depend on you every week. There, uh, there's a, a man who pays you every week. Do you discharge all your duties of your ministry? The Bible speaks about duties very often. Paul says to the Colossians, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do it. Not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor 
but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. Discharge all your duties, he says. This is a phrase, I only spotted it uh, this week. It's in the third letter of John, the smallest book in, in the New Testament. And he writes in verse 7, You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. When you send your children to school, when you send your husband to work, you send them in a manner worthy of God. Now that can mean if it were God our loving Heavenly Father sending them, you would be sending them just like God sending them. Or it could mean it was God you were sending. And you'd be very, very careful, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be the case if you were sending God? You're sending your children, you're sending your husband, you're sending your wife somewhere. I can remember after um, he had preached uh, one Wednesday, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones got the train to London the next day, and I happened to have a meeting in London the next day, and so we went up on the train together, the only time that happened. And he always stayed with Dr. John Williams and Mrs. Williams, and uh, she sent him on his way with uh, an empty ice cream carton full of salmon sandwiches. And he shared them with me. But before we left, uh, a man called Mr. Henry Miles, he came to the railway station to wave goodbye to the doctor, and he gave him a bar of chocolate. Well, he kept that bar of chocolate to himself. But he shared uh, the, the salmon sandwiches with me on our journey up. Okay? People came and sent him on their way, and they did it as a Christian so that he was refreshed and encouraged in a, in a way that God would appreciate. All of us have got our duties, don't we? We're parents, we're husbands, we're wives, we're friends, we're church members, we're neighbors and citizens. He did not come. He did not come to be served by flunkies who waited on him. He came to serve. He saw dirty feet and he served. He saw a mother who was wanted the best for her children and she was an ignorant woman, but he was so patient with her. He served all the time. He didn't drum his fingers waiting for someone else to wash their feet. He got on with it. He gave his life. Because he loved us. He served us in that way. Four marks of being real Christians. Four evidences of being really mature now. Spirit-filled. Men and women. Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. This is how a Christian desires to live. None of us do it perfectly. We have to say at the end of every day, sorry Lord, sorry for today. 
But we would, we would do it perfectly. We would do it with all our ransomed powers. We would do it. Do you, do you know this desire to do it? Uh, do you know this illimitable access to an indwelling Savior that you have with you always? Help me in driving, Lord, now. Help me when I call. Help me as I write this letter. Help me as I watch television. Help me, be with me in all I do to, to please God in these ways. This is the only happy life. This is not an option you can consider. This is a divine obligation as creatures of God and then as those redeemed by God, by Jesus Christ, who can help you and help me to live like this. Amen. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that these words will not fall to the ground but will be seeds by the great sower and they'll land in our hearts and they'll produce the fruit of loving, holy obedience. Much more than hitherto. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.